Hello, and welcome to Farmers Capital Conversations. I'm your host, Casey Silveria. This podcast aims to expand your social, intellectual, and economic capital. Investing on and off the farm is hard enough. Here, we will provide insightful stories and resources to help out. Full transparency, this is our shameless way for you to like us and hopes you partner with us down the road. Lastly, there are no ads here. All I ask is you enjoy and share if you find value. Now, on to the episode. So we're just doing a better job in the actual yeah. management of everybody's assets, whether it's ours or our, our third-party management clients. And um, and it's just puts us in a good spot, right? And because we're competing with very, you know, very mom and pop legacy owned companies that haven't haven't embraced tech, haven't embraced, you know, a pricing structure that reflects what you need in order to do a good job. We have a lot of folks that come to us from the five, six percent folks and are happy to pay the eight, nine. Because we're just doing a better job and they're making more than the incremental two or three percent difference, which when you think about it, it's not that much. Like, you know, a lot of people are so cost focused and not value focused. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Farming for Passive Income show. I'm your host, Casey Silveria. Today, we are joined by Axel Ragnarsson. He is an active real estate investor based in Boston. Um, he is a founder of Aligned Real Estate Partners, focusing on acquiring Class B and C value-add assets. So perhaps we can get a little bit into those weeds here during this episode. Um, yeah, he currently owns and directs um, a GP interest in over 450 units, units or doors in multifamily real estate, and has been a principal party in over $62 million um, worth in transactions. So excited to have you here, Axel. Yeah, Casey, thanks for the invite. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, yeah, me too. We we're having a good little um, precursor conversation to this, getting into the weeds a little bit about housing, trying to provide affordable housing solutions to the markets. And I'm sure in Boston, it's you know similar to a few hot markets around the country. Yeah, it's um, it's a really, really complex and challenging topic to talk about. I think for for many reasons, um, because I think it's just such an emotionally charged topic, right? And uh, and people have really strong opinions. Um, you know, we. We don't necessarily buy affordable deals in terms of like lie tech deals, tax credit deals, but we do a lot of workforce housing investing, C-class investing. So we're adjacent to a lot of these conversations. And mm-hmm. I personally live in Boston. Um, I'm from New Hampshire, you know, which is about an hour north of Boston. That's where I grew up and that's where we invest now. And um, and within Boston, it's, it's challenging, similar to like New York City or San Francisco or L.A. or San Diego or any of these major cities that, you know, the top 10 cities from a population standpoint, median income, all of this stuff. Um, there is a whole contingency of folks that believe affordable housing should be built, you know, next to the um, called the million dollar homes or the, you know, the core yeah. areas of the city. And yeah, class A properties. Gonna, Exactly. Right. And, and, you know, I'm not here to, to get into whether or not you should be doing that from like a social standpoint or from a political standpoint. You know, my comment is just on the math of it all, which is it's a lot easier for affordable housing to pencil out, you know, low income housing. If there's going to be some kind of government restriction on it, if it's just built in an area where the land costs less. Um, right. That's that's not that's not political. It's just kind of math. Right. That's factual. Yeah. It's just it's very hard. to. Debate. Well, you have to have a lower cost basis because when you're supplying rental units for a population who doesn't earn as much income, then they're obviously able to provide income to that income producing asset, right? So the cash flow at the end of the day is going to be nil, if like small, if any. 
Yeah, and the, and the challenge is, you know, if we think about what the problem is, we don't have enough housing, right? And the cost of housing is too high. That's what we're all trying to solve. What's the easiest way to solve that? Build more housing. You add more housing stock to the marketplace. Overall, the cost of housing comes down because there's more options for every individual living throughout the country. And is it easier to provide more housing um, five blocks from the beach in San Diego or in the, you know, the Midwest or the Southeast or Southwest, where there's a bun, where there's a lot of land, or you're just heading further inland in California, right? If we're going to use the California example here. And I, I use mm-hmm. California because I have a couple of investors that invest out there, a couple of friends that invest out there. And there's so much political uprising locally around, we need to build it here. It's like, okay, you know, we understand that people want to live in San Diego. Who doesn't? There's a reason why the housing there is very expensive. I would love to live there. It's beautiful, right? Yeah. So it's really, if somebody wants to build a single family home or an apartment building, they're paying an arm and a leg for the dirt to go build that building on because it's one of the most desirable areas to live in in the country. So if we're going to, if we're going to solve this problem of more housing and more, you know, units being added to the stock, the housing stock, and we want to provide more housing for everybody, we need to go to where there's an abundance of land, comparatively speaking, um, which is, you know, that's my two cents on the whole topic, but it's, it's just a challenging topic to discuss because oftentimes, uh, you know, opinions and what, you know, people's motivations are not based in what financially makes the most sense, right? There's other things at play, which makes it a hard topic to talk about. Yeah. And pe- people get really emotional. I think there's just a lot of angst in the situation right now because single family, purchasing single family is really expensive right now. Even with what's going on with interest rates, it's still difficult to get into a single family resident. At the same side, when you're a renter, you look at the increases in rent you've been seeing, especially in the last few years, 10, 15, even 20% at times in these hot markets. And everyone's like, it's just kind of hard to set a baseline understanding and say, first and foremost, we're all trying to do right here. There's no, there's no one out here. Like if you're a real investor and you're looking for the long term, then you want what's best for all parties involved. And that includes the tenants. Yeah. And, you know, we were just talking about the, uh, the, the lack of affordable housing, right? Another way to solve this, if you're going to even get outside of tax credits or uh, government subsidy, whether that's state or at the federal level in terms of building housing, the other way to, to tackle this problem is to just introduce more market rate housing. Because if you introduce more market rate housing, again, you know, yeah, maybe it's not uh, affordable C-class or kind of quote unquote lower income or affordable housing. It's not designed to cater to that resident base. If you just introduce more A-class housing or market rate housing, right? And usually it's A-class because that's what people can afford to build and rent. That still provides a trickle down effect. You're still adding more units yeah. to the overall supply. That only can help bring prices down. That's math. That's not. It's not theory. It's just math, right? So I think, um, yep. you know, that's the other challenge, right? Again, I live in Boston, which is one of the most anti-development <laughs> uh, uh, cities in the country, right? Similar to like the LA's and the San Diego's, the NYC's, all that stuff, right? Just tons and tons of red tape to work through, and that's why we don't do business here. I just personally live here, and. Um, you know, like one of the big things that is such an easy lift is just reforming zoning regulations. Um, you should yep. be able to build 20, 30, you know, attractive market rate apartments in, you know, in areas where maybe there's predominantly single family homes now, um, or even just building six to eight, right? You know, we're not, you know, we're not trying to trying to tackle this problem in one big swing, but mm-hmm. if we make it easier for folks to build either condos or apartments, just more units of housing, just more square footage of housing versus 
zoning restrictions being so, you know, uh, so upheld and different cities and states around the country approach this differently. So I'm, I'm not trying to generalize, but this is kind of what it is in my personal backyard. Um, yeah. that would help solve the problem. Right. You know, and, uh, it just, it's just making it easier to provide more supply. And, and right now it's not easy to do that. It's a very antiquated system in terms of working through approvals pretty much nationwide. Um, and you know, there's all other kinds of challenges with building costs and stuff like that, but it starts with making it easier to bring housing into the marketplace, which is not, it's not easy to do that right now. Yeah. It needs to be advantageous for the developer coming in. And if they're going to have to go through a six to 12 month process of just rezoning the land and getting the plans approved by the city, the city council, the community members, like that. And in the end, like they're just trying to provide more housing to people at market rates to increase that supply so that the prices will come down for everyone involved. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, again, I keep using the California example because I have some friends out there, but they're like, if you want to go and and build affordable housing in like Los Angeles, you're going to spend seven, you know, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars a unit to build. That'll never happen. Like there's just the, 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 the financial components of that is so completely and utterly out of whack that 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 will never happen. So for example, in that situation, like Los Angeles needs to make it extraordinarily easy for folks to accomplish their goal, which is bringing more housing into their city, catering to folks that need that housing. Right. But it's not, they they haven't done that yet. Um, And you know, what's interesting is these are the same dynamics that we think about when we select markets that we want to invest in. Right. We want we personally want to invest in supply constrained markets, which is why we do a lot of business in the Northeast, because it's inherently supply constrained, both from a geographical standpoint. You know, you got the ocean on one side, you got mountains everywhere and people don't want to build <laughs> or be, because the, yeah. the cities and the states make it hard to do that comparatively to Florida, Texas, Arizona. You know, a lot of the southeastern states where it is very, very easy to build, comparatively speaking, because there's more land and because the states are just more development friendly. Mm-hmm. So. And they can build yeah. all year long. Exactly. That's a whole other piece of it too. So that is a solution to affordable housing. And I, and I wish that, you know, the Northeast was, you know, it, just because we invest here because it's supply constrained isn't, that doesn't mean that's personally what I think it should be. I think there should be much, much easier to build because, you know, the state that I grew up in, for example, New Hampshire is so supply constrained that it has one of the highest rent growth rates in the country. Um, and it's just because you, because we can't, add, there's no units being added to the housing stock, like at all, you know? So, um, there is a balance that should be struck, uh, you know, and, and it's just hard to figure out what that is. And, um, it's just challenging because you're dealing with government, right. And, and they don't tend to move quickly and, or respond to, to challenges very quickly. Yeah. Very, very slow for sure. Um, and I guess one, Maybe if we could just touch on what light tech deals are, how they're structured, you know, really light tech deals are just deals that are structured financially. So they're advantageous for the investors to offer low income housing to people in areas where it wouldn't have been otherwise. So maybe if you could just touch on how, what that is for us, maybe dive a little bit into that and then how how you're structuring deals and he, how you're executing in the market in class C and Bs. Yeah. That's so be great. You know, big, big asterisk here. Um, you know, I'm not a lie tech investor, so, um, you know, I'm, I don't have the best fundamental understanding of that program. Right. So big asterisk here. So, you know, it stands for low income housing tax credit, which is a program designed again, as you mentioned, to subsidize the development of affordable housing. So, 
Um, local governments, the federal government, state government can provide tax credits to developers um, in exchange for them deed restricting the property that they're developing. So, um, and, and this is where my knowledge starts to get fuzzy. So you have 15 and 30 year, I believe, sometimes somewhere in the middle uh, in terms of, yeah. you know, you have your, your, you can only lease to tenants who are making some percentage of the area median income. And that, and that percentage varies and depending on how strict it is, or, you know, it could be less strict or more strict, maybe 80% of area median income are all the way down to 50. And depending on how restricted that property is depends on the type of tax credits that the developer is being offered. And the, the goal for the developer is, okay, we, you know, we're going to have uh, the government coming in and helping us, you know, fund this development. And in exchange, we're agreeing that we're only going to lease it to folks making X amount of the median income, which therefore provides affordable housing. So it's a great program. I mean, that's, it's a, it's a program that is used by a lot of developers, right? It's a successful program and certainly achieves that goal. Um, but you know, it's just one, it's just one way to attack that problem. So it's, there needs to be more mm-hmm. ways, long story short. But again, you know, I don't, I don't personally, you know, do too much business there. Yeah. But what, what I do uh, typically invest in and what we typically buy is class B and C housing, which, um, you know, is again, it, it caters to the, um, you know, kind of median income earner, slightly less than median income earner typically in the markets that we invest in. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's similar in the, in the respect that, um, you know, we're not a class, right? We, we get in there and our fundamental objective is providing safe, clean, affordable apartments, right? I mean, that is literally the fundamental mission of our business um, and pairing those apartments with really great management um, because that's typically the part of this that gets lost, especially mm-hmm. with legacy owners, long-term owners, mom and pop owners, folks that have owned, uh, you know, C-class assets, especially for a long period of time, Um it's hard. The, the management of these assets is challenging. So oftentimes, either the management companies or the owners get burnt out over time and they stop really making their repairs. They stop answering the tenant phone calls. They stop really, you know, uh, attending quickly to the maintenance requests. And we come in and we do the opposite of that. We provide a high level of service. And obviously, there's a mission driven component of that in terms of we want to be a great management company because these are people's homes and they oftentimes haven't had exactly. a good manager for a while. But also it's good business, right? We, um, we yeah. retain tenants longer and, um, you know, we can typically charge a little bit more in rent because we're providing a higher level of service. And, uh, and that's how we find our edge in, in that specific asset class. I, lo- I love that point, focusing on the management. Very few people, like you just said, are rarely doing that. You know, they're not updating. They're not fixing the faucets. They're taking weeks to call a cus- or a tenant back. And that's just, yeah, that's just not good business. And if you're, if your mission is really to trying to provide good housing at a good rate, then that's like the main way you can do it is with good management, just be responsive. Yeah. And for example, I'll get a little tactical here. You know, this might be something that applies to some of the more active operators listening, but again, it's a fundamental concept that everybody should be aware of, right? Um, something that we, tr- you know, cause we own our management company. We're vertically integrated in New Hampshire. Um, specifically we invest throughout Florida as well, but in New Hampshire, we own our management company and we do some third party management. So we're very, very in the weeds on an oper- on the operation side. And, um, you know, one of the things that we track from a metric standpoint is our renewal rate, right? And it's very fundamental 
KPI that many management companies or operators of multifamily real estate should track is when we lease up a unit, how many of those folks are staying and renewing their lease? And you want that number to be high because you want to minimize your vacancy. And then we take, we go a step farther. What actually, um, what, what drives a good renewal rate? What are the things that we can do actively throughout the year to um, make it more likely that a tenant renews? And one of those things is just very, very quickly responding to maintenance requests. Um, so we, we track our maintenance response time, basically the length of time from when a tenant submits a work order to when that work order is closed out and satisfied and completed. And we are always trying to manage that number down, manage that number down. Um, and that's typically the, there's such a gap with that specific data point between very, very effective C-class property management operators and bad ones. Like you, from five days to 30 days. Like there's such a wide gap there. I mean, it is so wide. Whereas in a class, it's usually, you know, you usually got a nicer building that the building is more quality. Usually you have some onsite staff. Usually the, you know, the folks that own those properties are a little bit uh, more sophisticated. They understand really how to operate real estate. And there's a, there's a smaller disparity there, but when you get into Mm -hmm. C class, especially when you get into smaller secondary tertiary markets where there's more fragmented, that number gets really wide. And that's like a very simple thing that we track that drives a good renewal rate. So, uh, and especially in New Hampshire, where we buy a lot of early 1900s built properties, like old buildings, um, cause that's just predominant, that's 90% of the housing stock up there. Um, you know, and it's like, what, what makes a tenant want to leave more so than anything is their shower broke or their water heater broke or their, you know, this broke or that broke. And they didn't get it fixed for like three weeks or four weeks, two weeks, whatever it is. Right. Ah, I don't want to mm-hmm. live here anymore. I'm going to move. These guys don't care about me or, you know, they yeah. don't care enough to fix our apartment. It's a huge pain point. Massive pain point. So, you know, that's, you know, in terms of getting in the weeds here, that's something that we really like to track. But that's like one of the things that is, is you know, profitable, but also does really good for the community, right? It's, it does both. And we achieve both missions at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and I like that point because it kind of goes back to that they're always win-win scenarios. Like you provide a better service and the customer is happy. Like it's not, yeah, it's just it's good business. Science. Yeah. <laughs> but so many people forget about that. Like the, like the mom and pop owners and like you, you were saying they probably just want, they're tired of running the business. And so they just haven't kept up with a lot of things. Well, that's where you come in and provide value. And I'm going to be, I'm going to broadly generalize here and I'm, and I'm going to be careful about saying this, but there's oftentimes in, you know, especially when you're in that small to mid-sized multifamily space, which is where we do a lot of deals. You know, we buy a lot of 30 to 80 unit deals. That's kind of where we play, um, where you don't really have the on-site management. And a lot of the owners that we buy from, because we do a lot of direct to seller and we reach a lot of these owners are folks that have owned the property for 15, 20 years and they're just burnt. They're just burnt out. Yep. And there's oftentimes such a mentality in this business of us versus them owners versus tenants, owners versus residents. It's not collaborative. There's no customers. They're, they're not even remotely thinking about customer service. They're just angry. They, they just, it's, it's always a battle. Everything's a battle, right? And um, uh, I find that that thinking is oftentimes prevalent in, in, I should just say the older generation, owners that are 65, 70 years old plus. I don't know why that is. I just, that's just where I notice it. I, I don't notice it in folks that are our age, right? That are on the younger side of this business, right? That's just not something that I see too much. Um, and we just buy property from them and we just, we don't have that mentality and we do well. It's, it's amazing how it works. It's really very, it's really very simplistic, right? It's hard to, to do in, in execution because it takes a lot of work and because it is very challenging. Managing C-class assets are challenging because you get all the phone calls of, you know, my neighbor 
smoked in the hallway and blew the smoke through my window. And like, you're just dealing with stuff like that all the time. But if you can wade through that and you can and you can have the fortitude, whether it's you or you're working with a great management company that has experience in this type of product, you can do really well. Um, and that's a very simplified generalization of it. But but it's interesting. And in that and that, you know, we just do well when we don't take like the, you know, the 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 us versus them approach, which is oftentimes something that's held by a lot of the folks we buy property from. Yeah, I, I see that as well. And mostly it's just being tired of it all and they it, resentment grows over time like once when they had a lot of patience like perhaps they were doing that but they just haven't kept up they haven't pivoted in a sense that made made yeah just made sense for for both parties but um so actually i'm curious about how you're you're investing in more or less new hampshire tertiary kind of fragmented market so how are you able to provide that level of customer service when you have properties, you know, kind of dispersed throughout the area? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's challenging. And that's why a lot of the big dogs don't do what we do, right? The the uh, institutional players, the really large capital allocators, whether it's an individual syndicator, or syndication company or institutional investors, they like to stick to the big markets with the big properties because you get the best folks, right? And it's, yeah, it's a great strategy, right? And that, and that works. And we'll probably get there someday. But we're kind of in that growth stage, right? We're, you know, our portfolio is at around, uh, I mean, we're at 350 right now because we're selling some. We'll probably be active back up to 500 by the end of the year. And it's all, all of those properties are 20 to 80 unit properties or portfolios. So it's a lot of smaller properties, like 20, 30 smaller buildings. And um, the way we do it in New Hampshire, because we own our management companies, so we're vertically integrated, is we just have more staff per unit than our competition does. So it's, you know, it's very simple. We just spend more money on payroll. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of how we, how we deal with that. Uh, the other piece of it is that we leverage technology in a, in a way that nobody else is leveraging it in our marketplace. So, for example, we we just do something very simple, which is self showings. Um, we allow tenants to, or you know, prospective tenants or residents to go on to, you know, Zillow. They see a listing, they can actually schedule a self showing. They can upload a picture of, of their ID and credit card, so we know who they are, and then they get the code and they can go show the apartment themselves, right? They can access it themselves. Mm -hmm. We don't need a leasing agent there with them. And, Solid um, strategy. I've done that myself. Yeah, and it you know it it, it four to five x is the amount of showings that we can do on a weekly basis. And um, yeah, we run into some problems here and there where somebody didn't lock the door right, or they left a window open, or like whatever, right? Or you know they tracked some dirt and mud in. But but that is but we can just we can just show more apartments at a higher volume, and because we're scattered site all over the place, that allows us to do that a little bit more predictably. And um, you know the other thing we do is is, uh, you know, we leverage other technology as well, of course, in terms of great PM software, you know, a lot of the maintenance, um, answering services, you know, all of these different things. But uh, we just charge a little bit more because we do some third party as well. So for example, where everybody in the marketplace might be charging seven or 8% with a leasing fee, you know, we'll charge eight, nine, 10%, depending on the property size. And because we're charging more, we can afford to hire better help, you know, one better qualified help and more help per unit, right? We have more uh, leasing agents per unit than our competition does. We have more maintenance techs per unit than our competition does. You know, our maintenance supervisor, we just have a maintenance super that it, supervisor that exclusively manages our routine maintenance calls, um, which a lot of our competitors don't have, right? So we're just doing a better job in the actual yeah. management of everybody's assets, whether it's ours or our, our third-party management clients. And... Um, and it just puts us in a good spot, right? And because we're competing with very, 
you know, very mom and pop legacy owned companies that haven't, haven't embraced tech, haven't embraced, you know, a pricing structure that reflects what you need in order to do a good job. We have a lot of folks that come to us from the five, 6% folks and are happy to pay the eight, nine because we're just doing a better job and they're making more than the incremental two or 3% difference, which when you think about it, it's not that much. Like, you know, a lot of people are so cost focused and not value focused. Um, right. And what, and what we do in Florida, for example, where we don't own our management company and we work a third party is we pay the best management company down there a little bit more than the mediocre one. And it sounds so simple, but so many people get hung up on this. Um, and it's crazy to me because when you think about it's the most important thing that you're doing. It is so important, like managing, you know, having a great management company and successfully operating your property is the most important part of the investment process outside of buying a good deal and structuring the debt correctly. Like outside of those two things, that's the most important thing. And um, if you have a bad one, everything goes to, to shit. You know, that's just what happens. So instead of paying 6% and, you know, and we're, we're skimming on fees and we're trying to negotiate to, to pay a little bit less, um, we'd rather just pay the eight, you know, and change, right? We have a 48 unit property down there. We pay our management company eight, 9%, um, you know, 8%. And then with all of the other fees, it's all in nine. And some people think that's really expensive. And I was like, sure, but we have the best management company and, you know, we generate the highest NOI well, of, out of all the properties around us, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think and your vacancy uh, rates are just yeah. much more consistent and improving yeah, over time. And when you think about the difference is, will this management company earn the difference in the fees that I'm paying them? That's conceptually how you have to think about it, which is yep. straightforward, but many people don't do that exercise where the difference between, you know, all in at six and a half and all in at eight and a half is 2%. Will this management company produce in excess of that 2% leasing units faster, collecting more rents, um, answering, answering the tenant maintenance calls faster and therefore increasing, increasing our renewal rate? Um, will they save us a little bit of money because they have good vendor uh, relationships, right? And they, you know, instead of 600 bucks a month for a landscape and we're paying 500 bucks because they have a preferred vendor relationship, all of that stuff plays in. Mm -hmm. And typically the, the Delta is much, much wider than that, you know, whatever it is, a couple percent. Yeah. I, I like that, that point that you bring up, Axel, the preferred vendor list. Um, a lot of people don't think about that either. But it's actually not that complicated if you have 10 vendors that you use, painting, HVAC, cabinets, mowing, tree trimming. And then it also creates efficiency within your management company and then someone else's as well. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, that's the benefit of working with large, local, knowledgeable partners is you gain access to their networks. Um, and that's the, one of, that's the biggest thing when picking a management company really is, you know, how solidified are they? in this local market. And, um, you know, our management company down in Florida manages a couple thousand units throughout the state. We're, we're a small client comparatively to most of their clients. Um, but that's fine. You know, we like, we'll take advantage of their, you know, they have a few GCs that they just have very longstanding relationships with that are very loyal to them. And, um, like, why would we try to figure that out ourselves or why would we hire a management company that doesn't have that? It just increases the risk profile of the deals that we do and the deals that we own unnecessarily. Right. And, uh, and that's we're you know, we're in the business of managing risk and sometimes you have to pay a little bit to manage that risk, whether it's a little bit more from a management fee standpoint or whether it's a little bit more to, you know, the right mortgage broker or the right lender to make sure that you're securing the best financing and to make sure you're getting, you know, you're closing on time and doing all of these different things paying a little bit more to the right attorney to make sure your butt's covered from a syndication standpoint and your investors are covered. 
um, from a you know from a st uh, document structure standpoint. All of these different things, and I'm getting sidetracked from the management, but it's all it all falls under the umbrella of you can either, you know there's cost and there's value, and they're not the same. They're very distinctly different ways to think about how you spend money in your business and within yeah. a deal itself. But that's exactly how investors should look at it as well. It's like we might be paying a little bit more for property management or a little bit more for attorney fees, but the risk that they're the lowered risk that they're providing has the potential to exponentially grow the value of that asset. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I, the biggest mistakes I've made in this business are working with the wrong people, um, working with the right or the wrong vendors, excuse me. And often almost, uh, you know, almost all of those decisions were made because I was trying to save money and then came back to bite me. Right. So this is like something that I just don't even play around with anymore. You know, when we have the two quotes from the two GCs for our big exterior job and one of them's got, you know, all kinds of referrals and they have a big team and they have a successful track record and they have an online presence. And then we have another one who maybe doesn't have those or has them to a lesser extent, but he's cheaper. We're going to pay more for the other guy every time um, mm -hmm. because we're in the business of managing risk and sure we can pay the other guy less and then we'll have to go do the work again and then end up paying more and wasting time. And that's, that's a situation I find myself in, right? I think, I think a lot of investors go through that because in the beginning you, you're penny pinching. You want to save everything. You want to make sure that you're taking the most home and you're so, you know, you're, you're stepping over dollars to save pennies left, right, and yeah. center because you haven't been trained to not think like that. So it comes with experience, but, um, right. but for sure, I mean, it's a huge component of successfully investing. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it comes from when you look at an income statement, you see your revenue and then you see all of the expenses. And what happens is people start to view those expenses as liabilities. But really, when you're, you have expenses that you need to incur in the business, that's actually just investments into your business. Yeah, I mean, pretty much, you know, and uh, especially in the multifamily game, um, there's a lot of talk around minimizing expenses, you know, cutting expenses, and that's like your value add, you know, you want to come in there and you want to minimize those. And that's how you're going to create value. And sure, there's truth to that, you know, you should, you want to make sure that you're managing your expenses efficiently. But successful value add business plans and successful uh, multifamily operations is rooted in maximizing revenue. That's what it's all rooted in. Um, because incremental revenue drops right to the bottom line. Most of the expenses that you have in multifamily real estate or real estate in general are fixed. Taxes are fixed. Your property insurance is fixed. Your utilities by and large are relatively fixed. Slightly, you know, uh, change depending on your occupancy, but in general, they're pretty fixed. Um, mm -hmm. Your contract services are fixed. Your payroll's fixed. You know, really the only variable expenses you have are, you know, like your common area utilities to an extent, your property management fee, if you're paying a percentage of revenue, and, um, you know, maybe like marketing, right? Those are really your only variable expenses, but that's such a small percentage of your expense profile. So the best multifamily operators know that in order to achieve the best outcome in an investment, to achieve the highest returns, you have to manage revenue, you have to drive revenue, and you have to minimize vacancy. That's where 75, 80% of their attention lies. And yeah, they, they'll do some audits of their expenses every year to make sure nothing's going crazy. But like, the energy is focused on maximizing rental rates, minimizing vacancy, um, you know, continuing to keep rents mm -hmm. close to market as the years pass and not letting them lag behind because all of that is just going straight to the NOI, right? And that's where typically a lot of operators fail is because they, they're splitting their attention between both, you know, evenly between the expense side and the revenue side. They're just not giving the revenue side enough attention. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I love that we're talking about this because for many of our listeners, limited or passive investors looking to get into multifamily investing or self-storage or Airbnbs, but really it comes down to like risk-adjusted returns. And so when we talk about how to invest in your company through maybe not so much decreasing your expenses because the value that those may be paying 2% for 2% more for a management fee, they're actually producing a much higher level of service and therefore value for the tenants. And if the tenants are happy, then the property will perform. And so mm-hmm. when investors are doing their due diligence on sponsors like you or me, like it's important that they're asking like, well, how are you investing into the business? What are your risk adjusted um scenarios that you're really going after and how can we ensure that this this is a good investment yeah no without a doubt and you know i I constantly talk about risk adjusted returns um you know i I have a podcast myself right that's something i'm always talking about and it's something that newer passive investors miss uh very very often in terms of um they they look at projected cash on cash projected irrs projected equity multiple and they just compare apples to oranges oftentimes between deals or sponsors um, you know, I always use the example of, uh, would you rather invest in a deal with a projected 17% IRR in a so-so market with a so-so sponsor from a track record standpoint and a heavy value add business plan or in a, you know, in a deal that projects 13% IRR, 400, you know, 4% lower uh, on the projected side, but that's, you know, minimal value add, couple grand a unit type of thing, solid market track record with a long sponsor and a vertically integrated team. Um, some people don't know how to make that decision. Me personally, if I'm a passive investor, I'm investing in the second scenario, the 13% IRR deal with, with not a lot of complexity and a good team, a hundred out of a hundred times. Every day. Like, every single time. And uh, and people forget that the more construction that's that's uh, part of a deal, you know, the 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 less um, uh, track or the, the the shorter the track record is on the sponsor side, the more execution risk there is for the deal. And there's more opportunity for things to go wrong along the way, right? For things to go over budget or for, you know, the wrong person to get hired or for, uh, you know, the property management company to stumble over themselves, what have you, right? And it doesn't take much to turn that 17 IRR into a seven or a five or a zero um, in a complex deal, especially in the current market cycle that we're in. You know, I'm not sure when this will go up, but early 2023, you know, you got to get into deals with that don't have a lot of execution risk. You don't want to be putting yourself in that position. Yeah. We, we're not trying to buy them as operators ourselves. If I was passively investing, I would never invest in, I, I would not invest in one right now. Maybe the exception is with a team that has an absurd track record doing those types of deals. But, but for me, the risk reward isn't there. I'd rather lock in a, you know, an investment into a deal that's got a lower IRR. There's just not a lot of moving parts. Um, so it's a really critical component of the business right now. And people are forgetting that. And it's the other piece of it too is, what debt structure is driving those returns? Another really important exactly. thing for investors to look out for. Yeah. Would you Especially rather Especially invest- with what's going on right now. 100%. And it's like, you know, you got sponsor, maybe two identical deals in terms of the risk profile, the market, the size, the sponsorship track record, et cetera, right? Very, it's apples to apples in terms of the opportunities. One's projecting a 17 IRR that's 80% leverage. The other one's projecting a 14, 15 IRR that's 65, 70% leverage. You want to invest in the other one, right? Less leverage, yep. it's safer, lower risk, better risk adjusted returns, et cetera. Um, but a lot of sponsors don't think about that. They just, you know, they kind of just look at the numbers and they get excited, right? But they don't really peel the layers of the onion back. 
Well, that's a problem. They look at the, just, they have the potential to look at a higher IRR, but with that, like you just said, it could be leveraged or it could be interest only for the first three years, but they won't know that unless the sponsor specifically says so, or if they ask the question. Exactly. So you got to make sure you ask the question. That's, I mean, that's the big thing is, um, what's your experience? I mean, the big thing is track record, deal, debt structure, you know, market, right? That's kind of what I describe it as. Hey, sponsor, have you done this before? If so, how many times? If not, eh, I'm probably not going to invest with you. Sorry. That's just how I think about it personally. Um, deal, you know, number two is the deal itself. Like what's the business plan? How much construction are we talking here? Is this just like we're kind of pushing rents a little bit? Or are we like doing a heavy value add, 20 grand a unit? Um, those are two. and Those are not even in the same ballpark in terms of comparison. There's so there's such a world of difference between executing those two things. Um, so, you know, you really got to understand the deal. And it, it has to align with what you're looking to invest in, right, as an LP. Um, you know, and then the, the debt structure, as we talked about. What, what kind of leverage are we using? What kind of prepays? Are, what's, what's, the, what's the balloon? What's the term? Do we have a balloon in two years or 10 years, right? World of difference. Um, and, and trying to understand what the overall leverage is for the deal itself. And then as you mentioned, interest only is great because it makes that cash on cash return look great, but you're not paying the debt down over time. So your principal balance isn't, isn't going down. So it's a higher risk debt product for the borrower. Yep. And then, you know, market. Um, we don't want to invest in a, in a market that one, misaligns with the business plan. Two, misaligns with the sponsor's track record, or three, just where there's literally nothing going on there from like a growth standpoint, right? And, uh, and people, you know, say I'm like, uh, I'm kind of cross talking when I say that because I invest in the Northeast and everybody just assumes everybody's moving out of the Northeast. Nobody, you know, it's a failing area. That's not true, right? New Hampshire has positive population growth, positive job growth, positive income growth, right? The states around it, pretty bad. Mass, not looking too good. You know, Vermont, not looking great. Maine, uh, a little bit better. Um, you know, New York, Connecticut, tough, right? People are leaving those states, but New Hampshire has positive population growth. So I'm getting, I'm having my cake mm. and eating it too, because I'm investing locally where we have a team, but we also have some growth metrics. So again, you want, you want to get into that nitty gritty, not to say that you can't make money in those markets, but you just have to understand the nuance of it and relate it back to the sponsor and the business plan. Yeah, exactly. It's all about the macroeconomics. Like I look at, if I'm going to invest in a new market with a new sponsor, always look at the macroeconomics, who's moving out, what demographics are moving into the state or the city and who are moving out because there's people going both ways. So understanding that piece is very critical. 100%. Yeah. Actually, so this is great. I love getting into the kind of the nitty gritty about what we really mean when we say risk adjusted returns. Um, I think you've done a really good job explaining, you know, how you and your company are, you know, executing those risk adjusted returns and kind of positioning yourself very well in the market where, you know, it's a lot of the big boys aren't really playing in this market where it's like 20 to 80 units um, for various reasons, but they're also unwilling to provide the level of service that you are doing in these tertiary, maybe fragmented markets. So I think it's good that you know, you're providing value that a lot of people aren't that out there really aren't doing in a very responsible and professional way. No, I appreciate that. No, that's great. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's our goal, right? We obviously want to continue raising capital from investors, but we want to educate them along the way because whether they're investing with us or with other people, you know, I just, I, I don't want folks to be losing money because it's very easy to lose money, <clears throat> excuse me, especially now mm -hmm. 
because there are a lot of folks in this business. Um, it's a very, very crowded business. Uh, there's a lot of people raising money. There's a lot of people trying to raise money. Um, some people just don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, it's very straightforward. And, you know, not that we haven't made mistakes. Um, we've made plenty of mistakes in our business, but I will say, pat myself on the back a little bit. I did it with my own money for years. I, I learned on my own dime. And the, I think the unfortunate reality is there's a lot of folks out there that are learning on other people's dimes right now, um, which is going to change as the market becomes a little bit more, um, you know, well, one, as the, as the real estate market declines in just value standpoint, and it's harder to survive as a sponsor, a lot of folks are probably going to transition out of the business. But um, but at the end of the day, you need to get educated as an LP. You can't just rely on, you know, a nice pitch deck because you, you might be in a bad spot. So. You should embrace learning as if you are actively investing and then apply those learnings mm -hmm. to investing passively. Exactly. Learn and then ask those sponsors the questions that are, are burning in your mind. And any good, res good sponsor, responsible sponsor will answer those questions like happily. Yes, exactly. And if they are not, then you go find another one because there's plenty of them yeah. out there, you know? Yeah. So watch out for the red flags. They should be commutative, very transparent on what's going on. So um, as LPs, I like to reiterate this. They always have a right to ask the questions, no matter what. Even if you think this guy is on a pedestal up here, like that's definitely not the case. Like every, this is a team sport. Real estate has always been a team sport. So everyone's on the same level. So feel free to ask questions. Hundred percent. It's a good tip, and it's, it's and it's very true. Um, this is there's a, a breadth of information out there and people to go to, whether it's you, I, other people. I mean, so many people are excited to talk about this because they actually just enjoy talking about it. You know, so it's there's no excuse to not do your diligence on whether it's a sponsor, a deal, a market, the strategy, the struct, all of that stuff. Right? There's so all so much information out there and so many people you can go to. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Axel, thanks for coming on. Is there one thing that you'd like to leave us with today? Yeah, you know, I, there, there certainly is. Um, I was thinking about giving like some kind of a high level answer, but I, I, what I'll try and do, and I'll, I'll be quick with it, is is give people a tactical thing to walk away with here in the, in the weeds, right? So this is a, applicable to both active investors that are looking for deals to, to go out there and buy and raise money for, or if you're a passive investor. A metric... Uh, an underwriting metric that is never talked about that I think now is more useful in underwriting deals than it has been the last four or five years um, that, again, is rarely discussed is just yield on cost. And in our business, we underwrite every single deal through that lens first, and then we get to everything else. And for those that are not familiar, yield on cost is just what you're earning on the money you have into a property. So it's your... Um, it's your NOI, your net operating income, divided by your purchase price plus any capital that you're investing in improvements. And that's your stabilized yield on cost, right? And if that number is higher than the cap rate in that market, then you have, you're probably in a good position, right? If that number is higher than all of your debt, probably in a good position. Um, and it cuts through all the noise of the high interest rate environment that we're in where you know, interest rates go up and down and that can manipulate your cash on cash return and your IRR and your equity multiple. And all of those metrics are tied to the debt that you use where stabilized yield on cost or yield on cost is cuts through all of that. And it just gets to what are we putting into the property and what is it producing? Right. And it, and it just, everything else is relevant. It doesn't, it doesn't include anything else. And it is such a great fundamental underwriting metric to use to evaluate a deal. 
And, um, and again, it doesn't rely on the capital markets uh, because it's intrinsic to the deal. So I highly recommend that if you're an, you know, an active investor, you start using that when you underwrite deals. And if you're, a, if you're an LP, ask the sponsor that maybe you're considering investing with, hey, what's the stabilized yield on cost for this deal? And you want to see a number that, again, is A, higher than the market cap rate. Ideally, you have 50, 7,500 basis points worth of spread. And it's higher than the leverage that's being used to finance the property, right? Those are two things that you kind of have to do from a table stake standpoint. And in our business, we look for deals that uh, produce a stabilized yield on cost that's 150 basis points or 1.5% higher than the current market cap rate. That's, that's what we look for in our business. That's like, if we check that box, then we get into all of the other underwriting to make sure it works. But something a little tactical for people to walk away with, because I think that's um, it's a very simple way to think about underwriting real estate. Oh, definitely. And it's also a really good way to look at it in any market. Right now, our capital markets is going crazy. Banks are collapsing left and right. And so bridge lending is a very interesting game right now. It has been for the last year, which is why we're seeing what's happening right now. And also the easy money for the last over a decade. So when you take out that debt piece and just look at yield on cost, it's assuming the it's calculating the return before any of that debt is in the equation. So just your purchase price, what you're going to put back into it, and then what will the income be produced from the asset? And then that's it. And then I, I love that approach. That's it. And nobody talks about it. I shouldn't say nobody, but it's very rarely discussed. Um, you know, it's just not, I don't know why, <laughs> because it's kind well, of Well, it's like a less the, sexy... Yeah. return number to look at because it's low and not everyone focuses on it for this reason because it's much more black and white. They focus on, you know, the reg the levered um internal rate of return, which is when you use the debt, because those are going to juice up the pro forma and those are going to juice up the returns that you are on your perspectives to your investors. But that's actually that's not a very professional and I think responsible way to go about it. Yes, those numbers should be a part of it, but yield on cost should also be one of the driving numbers for any investment. Absolutely. Yep. No, hundred percent. Yeah. That was great advice, Axel. Thank you for that. Um, and then, so how can people get a hold of you more, learn more about you and your company? Absolutely. Yeah. So our business aligned real estate partners, as I mentioned, we buy BC class or as you mentioned, I should say, uh, we buy BC uh, class multifamily assets throughout New Hampshire and Florida, um, specifically central Florida. Our website is alignedrep.com. And if you want to get on our list, you can head to alignedrep.com slash invest. If you want to reach out to me, axel at alignedrep.com. Last thing I'll plug is uh, I also host a podcast called the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. It's just just folks nerding out on multifamily real estate. That's the best way I can put it. So um, whether you're an LP or you're somebody who's actively investing, I, I highly recommend you check it out. Awesome. Thanks for that, Axel. We will definitely put all of that in the show notes. So if anyone is interested, feel free to check it out there. But for now, Axel, thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Casey. All right. See you, everyone.